You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez. And before we get going, let me introduce the guys. Over here on my right, we've got Bobby Osinski. Hey, Bobby. Mike. Hey, everybody. Next to him, sitting in with us, sitting in on the... Uh, on the big people's table. <laughs> oh. it's like, I'm rather short. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> the one and only Jeremy Dennis. Hey, guys. Jeremy. How's it going? Steve? I know. It's good to have you I here. Got, I got stilts and you let me in. I it was know. awesome. You know, Jeremy's been doing a lot of great stuff. We got Colin running the, running the booth back there. So it's awesome. It's awesome. Um, across the table for him, we've got uh, our good buddy, Mr. Mellow, Nick Peck. Hello, Mike. <laughs> Mellow as usual. I just had a triple latte on the way in. <laughs> oh, and finally, over here on my left-hand side, the one and only Iron Man of the Audio Nowcasts. This is show 148 for mm. Mr. Rob Arbiter. Hello, gentlemen. Is it really 148? 148. Wow. Crazy, right? That's pretty crazy, and I'm actually here in person for this one. That's right. Show number two of our ninth year. It's it's going going well. What well, are we doing good. for 150? Nothing, no. right? <laughs> I get cold water. Oh, cool. <laughs> Refrigeration. And, nice. And stopping by and joining us uh, is a friend of Nick, um, Russ Brasher. Russ, welcome to All the right, Russ. Hello, Mike. How are you? And you know what? Russ has some... Great stories. He's worked with a lot of great people. And uh, we're going to, he doesn't know this, but we're going to be doing some visiting with him on the uh, second half because when I say he's worked with some royalty of the music world, I mean, we're talking royalty of the music world. So it'll be really great to talk about that. But first, we got to talk about a few things. Number one, our servers did not go down after we posted the last show. We are up and so running. Is that good, or does that mean no one, no one downloaded it? That's true too. No, we uh, we're hosting our files on a on a different site, and it's actually working really good. So nice. It was really. I was really worried because literally, if we had crashed the site one more time, they were going to shut us down. Wow. You know? So that's NetFirms. If you want to know who I'm with. <laughs> That's the people who you were with previously or the people who you're Actually, with now? we're still with them. We're just hosting the files remotely. So that's uh, it works out good that way. And, you know, they're, they're, I haven't had any problems. And, you know, you have the unlimited bandwidth, right? Oh, yeah, you've got unlimited bandwidth. There's no such thing as unlimited no. bandwidth, right? No. You're unlimited bandwidth in relation to all the other websites that are on that server. Right. So, like, if all the other websites are doing – you know, bandwidth of, let's say, um, 50 gigabytes a month, right? And you're doing 50 and you want to go to 55. Well, great. It's unlimited. You can keep doing that as long as you want. But if you go to 150 or 200 gigabytes, they're going to shut you down. Not only will they shut you down, they're going to shut down whatever file is causing the drain. And that's exactly what happened when we posted the show before. Well, and, and sometimes they don't shut it all the way down. They just switch it to like a 300-baud modem. Uh, so it would take forever for the file to come down. You know, they shut us down. They put up a uh, – our, our website didn't even go up. It was a, uh, a placeholder. Wow. It was it was like and they and they were supposed to warn you. There was no warning. I got no warning. That's what kept us off was the fact that I said, Hey, um, 
you know, you're supposed to warn us. It says that you're going to warn well, us. Well, maybe the servers that send the warning were beyond their bandwidth. Did <laughs> <laughs> think of that? It's true. Anyhow, we're on, uh, we're on Amazon S3, which is actually works out really good. I mean, it's a paid service, but, you know, um, it's really affordable. And when you only get seven downloads a show, it's like mm. pennies, pennies. So it's all good. Particularly when three of them are all coming from your house. <laughs> That's <right>? true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so it's all good. Um, but uh, a lot of stuff's been happening. A lot of, um, you know, things are changing, people, in front, right in front of us. Technology is changing. Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, Coachella. The bands weren't, weren't pulling in. It was the DJs, things like that. Music's changing. There's a lot of change that's happening right now. And one place where... Um, things are changing is in the broadcast world. And a couple of the shows that I mix and do sound design for are getting pulled off their network and they're going exclusively to Hulu because they found out that more people are watching them for their demographics on Hulu than they were on regular TV. And that's Can you mention these shows? Yes, yeah, the Fox shows that I do, um, Axe Cop. It's all those, those edgy cartoons, that animation, animated series that I do. It's geared for college age, you know, you're talking 18 to, to 25. Um, and the 18 to 25-year-olds on a Saturday night, if they're home, they're not turning on their TV. What they're doing is they're going to their Xbox. They're going to their computer. They're going to Hulu. And, I mean, that is a big, big deal when shows are coming off of network and now going exclusively and look what's happening with, with Netflix and you look what's happening with Amazon and you look at all these streaming only options. I think the changing, cause I don't think networks are going to die, but the, the changing of what the network model is going to be, it's, it's going to happen a lot faster than people think. I mean, we're talking instead of five years out, you're talking, you know, it's going to be a whole different landscape you know, in a year or two, you're going to start seeing online shows winning Emmys that have never been on TV. You know, you're going to start seeing a lot of things change. And it's just, it's just exciting at the same time, a little scary, you know, but there's more opportunities for people. There's more opportunities for people in audio. There's more opportunities for editors and things like that. So having said that, guys, you know, last podcast, we talked about how we, you know, we, we mentioned the fact that, you know, the iPhone on show number 33, you know, maybe it was going to work, <laughs> you know, but things are still, still rolling, man. There's a lot of changes still happening. And um, that's just one of them. And that, that recently happened. And it's just, you know, it's a good time to be in audio. Um, it's a good time to get into broadcast audio. You just got to plan your career and just know where to go because there's a lot of opportunities out there. Um, you just have to do it do it right you know so when things shut down in one area you know something else will pop up on the other area and um and just stick with it and i just want to encourage all that the college kids that are out there i've had a couple people you know email me and ask me about you know what they should do and stuff like that but i just want to say don't panic you know you just have to um just realize that there are going to be opportunities i don't know where they are (laughs) (laughs) there'll be things that you don't even know about yet but you know persistence in the face of hardship leads you to your goal that's the way it always is and it's fascinating to me you know having two small children neither of my kids will ever grow up dealing with network television 
at all. Yeah. They consume their content over Netflix, yeah. over Amazon Prime, and it's irrelevant to them whether it's on the TV, whether it's on our laptop, or whether it's on the iPad. To them, it's all the same thing. It's all one, you know, it's all one conduit, and it's fascinating to think about that. Well, what's even more amazing is the fact that the television itself doesn't have that, that awe factor that it did for us when we were growing up. It's like... Oh, the TV. When I, I remember when I got my first TV in my room, right? Yeah, it's got a TV in my room, you know, and you had a little rabbit ears. And, of course, it was, you know, horrible. Re- no, it wasn't that bad, but it was <laughs> horrible reception. But, you know, nowadays, you've, you've got, you know, my little 12-year-old goes into her bed and gets the little iPad and watches the Disney Channel a little bit before she goes to bed. It's like she has no concept of of how awesome TV in your room was and and it's it's just things are changing you know when I have a t like I I bought two thirty inch monitors for my uh, computer system at home um, because I wanted a bigger space and I just I wanted a bigger bigger monitors and the monitors themselves were Samsung and they had apps where they had built in you know Netflix and built yeah they could play games but they also had Netflix and they had Hulu and they had um, Amazon Instant Prime and all these services built in. I didn't even have to plug it into cable. I mean, I could just get, you could just buy a TV, not even have to plug it into cable to any program service, just get your Wi-Fi and get all your programming. You know, And ABC has this ABC online app where you can watch what's on ABC on the TV without going through your cable. It, it's, a, it's a crazy, wacky world. And I don't know. I don't know how the, the broadcasters, the... The networks, I, I don't know how the, they're going to react. You know, you can definitely see the gold is in programming now, right? I mean, it's like you make the programs, you've got a lot. And if it's good, you've got a lot of different places where you can sell that program. So, And that's the thing. People will literally buy the programs now. So, like, we haven't had – we have a TV, a physical TV, obviously, but we haven't had, like, cable or TV service of any kind for more than a year. <coughs> and – um because of that, I don't have to watch ads. I mean, I guess occasionally if I catch something on Hulu, they still have ads. Right. But every other place, I literally give the company money and they give me a TV show that doesn't have commercials. And to me and to all of my friends that I'm aware of, um, that is way preferable. It's I don't have to sit through stuff I don't want to watch. I don't have to like worry about, like, oh, God, I'm going to have to watch this commercial 14 times during this one TV show. I give them money and they give me stuff. You're not a sports fan, are you? I am, but I go to a bar for that. That's a social experience. But even sports, ESPN Live, I can watch live what's on ESPN through through my TV. So (laughs) I guess to re-answer your question because I thought about it, you're right. I'm not a big sports fan. Like when I want to watch a football game, it's like usually – once a month, maybe maybe I'll go to three or four games throughout the course of the whole season, and I'll do it with friends at a bar, and I never think about it again. So that's accurate. Yeah, I'm not a big sports fan. I don't miss that part of it. But even sports, you know, you could get NFL package and get the Major League Baseball package. Yeah. You can right. now you can buy your sport and watch not just your local game, but watch. All the right, so I, I have a friend up in the Bay Area who's an LA Dodgers fan. God knows why. Because um, they're good. But, uh, <laughs> but he, uh, so he pays the the MLB.com thing. It's yeah. thirty or forty bucks a year, yeah. and he doesn't just watch baseball. He watches his team. He yeah. watches his home team, the one that he yeah. cares about. So that's pretty cool. You know, it's funny. Uh, just as a side note, on that Major League Baseball, there's a bunch of baseball fans where I work, and all their teams are the East Coast teams. So about. 
3 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, if you look at the computers, you know exactly what you're going to be seeing on their computers. You know, it may not be the top window. It's like kind of hidden underneath, but you see all these little feet running around and stuff. It's pretty funny. But, you know, that's the age that we live in. All that to say is, you know, things are changing. They're changing, I think, for the better, and there's a lot of opportunities out there. Have the Emmys figured out how to deal with programming that isn't on TV? I, you know what? I don't know. Yeah, the, I, I cannot answer that question, but I know that they have because I know that there was a Netflix series, House of Cards, that they submitted in the drama category. They had to go through a bunch of like nonsense, basically. It never aired on TV. It wasn't like on TV and somewhere else. It was only on Netflix. Right. And they did wind up getting the nomination. I don't believe they won anything. but So they were sort of like the, the first you know, trial monkey to see how it was going to work. So there is a way to do it, but I couldn't tell you the specifics at all. I have a friend that's a, a governor on um, the Academy, Television Academy. I'll ask him. Yeah, that would be really yeah, good. He'll, he'll know. I'd be curious to know because they're going to have it's to coming. Be- you know, it's coming. Yeah. yeah. Just have they. And I, I think it's here. You know, I mean, you know, you've got great series like, you know, Orange is the New Black, things like that are just getting a ton of critical praise and a lot of fans and things like that so it's coming uh, and it's it's a lot faster than we think um now having said that we're totally going to change gear we're going to talk about some gear um i posted on the facebook um a uh, a link and actually nick sent me um the original link for the um the harrison um Mix bus program. Did you did you you picked it up, right? I did, of course. I've been excited about this for a while, being, you know, a real fan of analog consoles and analog EQ and having a system in which you can just get in there and start working and not having to bring up a bunch of different plugins and things and sort of configure it. I just really miss the days of being able to go in and having right. a console with your EQ and your compression and so forth. When Harrison, uh, I discovered that they'd been working on creating their own digital audio workstation or more specifically a mixing system that sits on top of the Ardor um, freeware system. I was yeah. really curious about what that was all about. Well, you know, we're, we'll come back to you maybe next week or so for a full review of that. Sure. But I just want to talk a little bit about it because I picked it up and I started working with it. And and Rob said something to me a long time ago. Um, we were talking about DAWs and, you know, this is back in the day, and how there are different sounds, different DAWs sound different. Right, Rob? I mean, like back, back in the day we were having a conversation about the same thing and – you were, I mean, there was like literally, you could hear the difference between the different DAWs. Do you remember that long? Vaguely, was it in the context of we were like talk- integer mixing versus floating point or yeah, something like that? Yeah, and then just the sounds of different DAWs mm-hmm. back in the day. Um, I we could have been talking about the analog I.O., depending how long ago the conversation was. <laughs> but she had said something about, you know, the so- how software, you know, sounds different and different software and it, it was pretty remarkable back then. I mean, there was some, some... Well, the differences were a lot bigger back then. Yes. I mean, there was some software that, you know, I'm not going to really say anything because... And hardware, too. Mm-hmm. But... Um, yeah, just systems in general. That sounded, you know, really, really not good. Really, really... I, I'll, I'll tell you one right off the bat. The first version of the Reason engine didn't sound that great. It was, like, really great, you know... Functionability, really cool plugins, but the sound wasn't that great. Um, wasn't very wide. Stereo field was pretty narrow. Things like that. Now, you know, they sound a lot better. Anyhow, when I got the Harrison, um, the Mixbus, the uh, software, 
I actually, on my laptop, was able to run um, Mixbus 2 and was able to run live um, Cubase and Pro Tools all at the same time. And it didn't crash, believe it or not, using my built-in output. So I could A-B all these different audio engines. And I want to tell you um, that they're all pretty close. You know, it's not nearly as bad as it used to be. There are some that were a little better, and actually the Harrison was pretty darn good. It was by far my favorite sounding one. And and if you could pick it up for 20 bucks, I, I really recommend it. If you, if you want to learn how to mix and understand, like, the mixing process, because the cool thing about the Harrison is it's set up like a mixer, and it makes you think um, – about mixing in a very musical way. It's not a post program. You're not going to do any post on this, but you're definitely going to get a great vibe on on mixing music. And they have you know the ability to have dynamics on every channel, and the EQ on every channel. I mean, just some of these simple concepts that you know back in the day, like parallel processing and things like that, that were really common. Um, you know that we may not do nowadays because in our plug-in little digital world to get from point A to point B. But really, the best thing about it is it actually, as I was learning how to do this and I bought, the, uh, they actually um, had a, uh, a series of videos um, that were instructional videos for using it. It was really cool because the guy was talking about, you know, dynamics and making it pop and, and you could hear the before track and you hear the after track and you hear what happens when you put a little compression compression here and here's a little leveler here and here's a little EQ and open it up. And it was very musical. And so if you're out there, even if you work on a different DAW or even if you want to do something, you know, in, in Pro Tools or something, you get all your tracks together and then you throw it into this, it sounds really good. And for 20 bucks, it was... It was a steal. I mean, it was a steal. It might be an interesting thing to play with um, just to see what it feels like to operate in something that looks and is specifically designed to behave like an analog console a right. little bit more. Now, what, just, just to be clear, you don't have to use the Ardor DAW underneath it. You can use this software on the Mac called Jack to be able to create virtual inputs and outputs between other digital audio workstations and Harrison at the same time. Oh, I didn't so know that. You can literally, and in fact, there's a video on the internet that says this is how you hook up Pro Tools to Mixbus. So you can have all of your tracks with their plugins and whatever you want in Pro Tools. And rather than assigning them to you know an audio and outlet, output, a physical audio output, you assign it to a bus that's a jack bus. You then bring those into the Harrison and you use MIDI machine control to go back and forth and control Pro Tools from the Mixbus. And the result really? of that is that you're sitting in Mixbus, you're mixing that way, and it's using Pro Tools as the tape playback oh, system. Oh, man, that's <laughs> way too complicated. <laughs> oh, agreed, agreed. So agreed. Now, now, hold on, does that work with Pro Tools HD hardware, or is it just like software going to Core Audio? <laughs> it is software going through Core Audio to the Jack system. Well, that, and you can do it with logic. <laughs> I, was, I was actually just waiting for Bobby's reaction. I knew it was coming, but I wanted to see how long until the pot boiled over. Because, yeah, that was sounding a little like the days of like hooking up MIDI clock and getting your Roland MPU 401 and hooking it to your Lin 9000. Look, I, I can understand. It sounds crazy. I, I get it. But when you run it through the Harrison engine, it really... There is an analog feel about it. There's a thickness about it that 
all the other DAWs did not have, especially on the low end. And it was this roundness. It, it reminded me of analog. You could tell this has an analog, you know, um, a pedigree. It just it, – it sounds analog. And for 20 bucks, right? Now, there's some things I didn't like about it. The fact that when you're writing automation, you can't see the automation as it's being written, which – is very you know back in the old day where you're running the uh, the fader and you're you're going up and down so you don't see that little black you got to think different it's it's a totally different you know so it's like analog then right exactly like an analog console it, it's but you know for those that that uh, you know are used to looking at your at your uh, automation as you're mixing and things like that it's a little unsettling not to see that kind of stuff but it sounds really good it's very musical that's the thing I think that. To me, is it's it's very very musical. It sounds really good. And th- let's face it, you know, simple concepts of how to use a compressor the right way, right, and not overly squash something and then crank it up, and you get all this fatness just taking up all the room and stuff. It's like, you know, it was really cool watching these demo videos and just seeing how you know talking a little touch here, a little touch there, and literally you hear these sounds and you hear the sounds and it makes a big difference and all of a sudden you know you're compressing your drums here and you get your guitar there and things are popping and it's focused and your mix is getting focused and i think that in and of itself is cool to get very musical like that you know i was just in memphis last week and i went to stacks and i have one of their t-shirts on right now um and they have a museum and they cut all those great Sam and Dave and Otis Redding hits on a 20 input audiotronics console and eight track scully and a two-track scully and that was it wow yeah and and so we're talking about the high tech here against the low tech but still it's better be in the grooves or else Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter yeah and to me it's just like sometimes some of these daws you think very technical but you don't think very musical and and that's I don't know how to explain that other than... Well, yeah, if it pulls you out of the... If you're thinking so on a technical level and it pulls you out of the musicality of the moment, that's no good either. And, and yeah, and even your changes, the ability to, you know, since your compressor's on every channel and you can see, you know, all your compressors and things like that on every channel and you could do little micro edits between this thing here and this thing there and this thing there as opposed to working in, like, say, a, a Pro Tools where you have to... Click on the plug-in, you have to it, access it, up, it right? yeah. goes there, and you have to access there. It's like there is something really magical about being able to add a little salt, you know, a little salt and pepper in really focused ways. And that's that to me was like that was a real turn on. That was yeah, like, that's this cool. is cool. Yeah. You know what? I'll just say this getting back to the creative for a second. There is not a single digital recording device being made today that you could not have a hit record on. That yep. you couldn't make a hit record on, including sure. down to your phone. So keep that in perspective. Worry a lot more about the hook and the melody and the production and the arrangement and the mix and and all of that stuff. When Nick was saying, I mean, I'm the kind of person who would be tempted to try the incredible software squirreliness to get yes, that to work would. just to see if I could do it. And, uh, you know, I have years of trying that stuff. But the truth is, in the moment, does the time that I would spend getting that working compared to the time of trying to come up with other keyboard parts or a guitar part or something... It's, it ends up being way more satisfying for me to focus on the creative because it used to be that if you used the wrong technology, the stuff sounded bad enough that it made a difference. Nowadays, I mean, even back to the Pro Tools TDM or the early mix days, you know, where first they sold it as the greatest thing on earth, and then when mix or when TDM 
when the HD stuff came out, they said, oh, that was garbage that we were selling you. The truth is there were plenty of hit records made on that that sounded great. And it's always relative. If you A, B, two things, yes, one might sound better than the other. But to get fixated on like a 1% improvement in something somehow affecting your song, I, th- I know lots of producers who get way too wrapped up in the technology. True. And, and, the, and, and the confusion of the I, technology. I think, no, that's a valid point. But at the same time, you know, it's a creative process. And, you know, you're not going to be writing in this. But if you can get to a point after your parts are done, now it's time to start mixing. It's time to put a little magic on it. And you can work in a in a environment that is more creative and allows you to do things differently than what you've what you've done before. I think it's it's going to show in your music. It's yeah, if it's more it. creative. I'd love to hear Russ's take on this in in regards to some of the clients he's worked with. Well, I was just thinking about you know plugins, and I was wondering about just what the bias would be on a Studer eight hundred and how you'd work that into a plugin. You know, <laughs> they do it. Yeah, they're trying to working yeah. Act for four sixty eight at plus three or whatever. I mean, I you know with this, all this talk about analog, we're forgetting about the tape element. You know, it doesn't sound like tape to me. And back and you're talking about all these plugins. I never worked in a room where we had a limiter for every module. Not until SSL. You had a couple of level 76s, couple right. of LA2As, some pull techs. That's all you had, and you had to work within that realm. You know, you didn't have all this flexibility. I think that's taken a lot out of it. I think a lot of uh, too many of the mixers I see today use everything where they, I think they shouldn't. Right, you there's know, everything it, on every channel. Yeah, there's compression in every channel. Really? Why? You don't need that. Let it breathe. You know, I mean, it's just too much stuff. I mean, I think Pro Tools sessions last. Ten times as long because of, well, let's try this. And nobody's really watching the clock because you're usually in somebody's house anyway. But there wasn't that much time. You know? I mean, we'd be tracking for a week, overdubs for a week, vocals for a couple of days, and mixing for three. That was a record. Unless it was Steely Dan, and then we're talking about years. But, you know, that's how it was. There's just too much stuff. You know, I think it drags the session down. That's too why. many choices. Too many choices. Well, I think one of... Like, if I had to come up with a catchphrase for it, it would be, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right, yeah. exactly. That, you know what? That's true. But at the same time, you know what? There's tools that are out there that are sounding great and helping you be creative. And I think the Harrison Mix Bus is one of those, especially for the price. I mean, come on, 20 bucks, and the list is, is 200 I mean, you Mike, know? you're in post, right? So aren't you thinking, like, five steps ahead? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, you're going, okay, I'm, you've got an announcer <laughs> coming in, but you're doing a mix, so you're going to have to, you know, lay something back really quick, and oh. then you... You don't have time. You don't have time. That is true. And you and I'm talking music. For post, post is a whole different ballgame because right. post we're mixing we're mixing ahead of our playback. I mean, that's basically why you're playing right. back here, but you're actually mixing up here. But you know, if you're into music and, and if you want a great sounding tool, I'm gonna we're gonna I'm gonna recommend uh, for the right price getting the the Harrison mix bus because it, it's ultimately it's about the sound and it sounds better than the other ones. How long is it for that price? <laughs> I've noticed it come up and down in in price quite a bit. So yeah. it was two hundred and twenty dollars last week. So by the time this thing comes out in you know the year two thousand and seventeen, what makes this what makes this Harrison so special as opposed to an API or yeah. a Neve or an SSL? No, well, I mean, it's, it's, Harrison was a good console, but it's, there's a lots of other stuff I'd well, rather no, be behind. The, it comes down to the sound, you know. And it's Harrison's weren't that this, great. Hey, whether Sorry. they were great or not, Swedeen might were... disagree with that assessment. <laughs> the, okay, whether they yeah. were great or not, the the DAW that they have, right, and, and is uh, it's 
pretty good. Wait, Sounds really Well, I don't good. think that API makes a standalone mixing plugin right. right now. I think that's more an answer to your question is, I think Harrison is the only one that's making their own some semblance mm-hmm. of a DAW. Yeah. That's why it would be a reason to check it out. And it, and it wouldn't be my, my only DAW. Unless you were, you know, if you're hard on, if you can pick it up for 20 bucks and you don't have a lot of money, then yeah, make it your only DAW. But having said that, it's just going to give you a different flavor and maybe sometimes... You know, you ever worked on something and you just need to change a venue? I mean, I've, exactly. I've done that. I've, I needed to change a venue. It's like I work in live. Okay, now I'm going to go over to Cubit. I mean, I literally I have pretty much every DAW available, mainly because of the podcast, but also because I like just all the different tools and stuff. And sometimes I'll start a project in here and end up there. And sometimes I'll start it here and end up there. It's just another one of those tools. One other thing to keep in mind, especially when you start talking about brand names, like Harrison, or you talk about a company that's porting their analog stuff to digital. I mean, it's a completely different technology. A lot of times it's different engineers. You know, if you have guys doing a DSP uh, approximation of an analog circuit, it's never going to sound exactly the same. I mean, they get it as close as, as they can. And even sometimes if you're porting a digital signal process to a different platform, like it's running on a different kind of, of DSP chip, right. it's not going to be exactly the same. So. If you see a name that you know you love in analog gear and you see it on a piece of digital, know that it was created with the intent of sounding like that, but it's not like it's the same thing. You can't take an analog API circuit and plug it into a DSP chip and all of a sudden it's the same thing. It just doesn't work. Well, that analog sounds different from each other anyway. We had two or three 1176s at school, and I kid you not, they all sounded different. Right. Mm Because that's, that's what we like about them. You can, good, you can actually get a good one or a bad one. I used, yeah. to, scr- I used to scrounge in whatever studio I was working on. I'd find the good gear and then hide it off. Right. <laughs> well, and now all that to say is, you know, this is not, I'm not, other than I, I put it up against Cubase, I put it up against Live, I put it up, put it up against Pro Tools, just run out of my laptop. Now, I didn't run out of any interface because I, I literally just wanted to get the output of my laptop and it sounded really good. It was really big, really round, had a great sound. So, you know, you don't have to change anything. You don't have to change your ways. But if you want something else, there's another uh, another option for you, you know. There's little quirks about it. And maybe when uh, Nick gives us a review, um, uh, you can tell us, you know. I'll be more than happy to tell you about it as soon as I'm able to actually get the thing working properly on my computer. <laughs> and you know what? Every now and then... Ask yourself whether you're spending enough time on the creative or, and too much on the gear or if, if the balance seems right. Every now and then it's good to pull yourself out of that chaos because I know I've gotten – I've swirled the drain plenty of times. But, you know, what's really interesting is a lot of times the creative and the gear are – they're blurring the lines. You know, you look at something like the new Spark 2 drum machine from uh, uh, Arturia, the uh, fact that not only does it have all these drum – Parts that you can play in it, it actually will do melody lines, and you can sound design melody lines and bass parts and things like that. And so, if you're putting beats and you're doing you know, your EDM stuff, your tech is your creative because that's where you're coming up. So lines are getting blurred all the time in, in that aspect. But well, you're but just the, you're just saying that because you're a giant gear nerd, so it yeah. depends well, you. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I'm just saying that because that's you know. I see these guys, especially you know, sound designers and things like that, who their sound is coming from their technology. You know, but it, it's very different. I mean, a content creation tool is very different than a 
than a recorder right. or a mixer. And, and having said that, look, you still got to know your musical chops, right? I mean, it still comes down to music. And so that, that, you know, you can't look, you'll only be better if you're better musically using this technology, right? If you're a good musician, then the technology is going to add to that, but the technology will never replace the musician part. Can we agree on that? Absolutely. <laughs> that was a comeback. You're as only good as your last hit record. <laughs> now, really quick, I had Jeremy sitting here because um, you know we've been ragging. <laughs> okay, maybe not ragging. We've been we've been discussing Pro Tools a lot, and um, Jeremy actually went to NAB um, where they where uh, Avid did a big presentation, and um, there's some kind of cool things that are happening with with Pro Tools, and I wanted to. Uh, Bring Jeremy on and really quick have him, you know, give us a little report. What what's up with uh, Avid and uh, what did they present over at uh, NAB, Jeremy? Uh, well, okay, so I guess specifically, just if we're getting really picky, I didn't get to go to NAB. I went to their Avid Connect conference, right. which was the beginning of their uh, Avid Customer Association. I believe is all of the uh, jargon that they're using to describe what is basically just a new feedback program. Um, the, to be perfectly honest, and hopefully doesn't Avid doesn't fry me for this, that part was a little more boring. Um, it's just new business corporate speak for the, what is a hopefully updated feedback system. But the thing that was cool was they demoed very, very, very early versions of Media Composer and um, uh, Pro Tools and, forgive me, what's the, the music writing software? The, um, Sibelius. Sibelius, thank you. Um, and they've basically got... Um, interconnected workflows in mind. And so the, it, all of the layers deep, they've got you getting to Avid and back to Avid and uh, uh, Sibelius to Pro Tools and blah, 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 blah. blah. In every direction, um, they've got new interconnected workflows. And some of the really cool stuff that I saw that impressed me was there was two things. One is basically Pro Tools sharing is going to work sort of like an iChat window. Like you're going to say, all right, uh, who's got a... Like, if Rob, if I wanted to work with you just because you're sitting across from me, um, you would have a username, I would have a username, and we would be able to connect, and I would be able to share sessions while I'm working on them with you and say, hey, I'm working on the guitars right now, I'm going to lock those, but I'll send you the drums and vocals, maybe you've got some magic plugin that I don't have, can you work on it, and then print it and send it back to me, and literally the same session will be open for both of us, and we're connected through the cloud. Um, it's a great idea, except... When would anybody ever want to use it? I think it's actually less relevant for music, which was all of the examples they had. Like, I watched them do. <laughs> well, okay, sounds so, perfect. Yeah, that's sounds avid. <laughs> it does sound avid. So, okay, it's it's early. Because this is not the first technology to do this. There've been no, plenty I, of attempts. To hell, do this. wasn't it Pro Tools that had Red Rocket yeah. like a while Ro- ago? Rocket Network. Rocket that, yeah, Network. Thank you. Sorry, uh, Red Rocket. And they weren't the first to have that. Either. A video card. Yeah, but. The thing is, I think it's actually going to be more relevant for post-workflows. I would imagine they didn't show it because it wasn't ready, because, again, the early alpha thing. Sure. So I relayed that story because I literally saw them do that. I saw them like freeze tracks, send it to someone who was on a completely different uh, network sort of thing. But I think that if we were on a stage and somebody said, I need to peel these Absolutely. three Foley tracks offline and that sh- makes sense. share it with someone upstairs, I think that's where it's going to be really beneficial. That would be so, cool. um, If the organization is better, once and, you get it. And that's the thing. They've introduced a whole new uh, media exchange and metadata and um, ISIS and Interplay and all of that stuff. You're going to get massive upgrades. Um, at some point, it's going to hit. I've, I've, I've run out of. 
the technical knowledge, because to be honest, I'm not very familiar with their right. ISIS setup, but I've seen it in in a TV show. I have a number of friends that are in the picture edit, editorial side, and ISIS for picture is really slick. So in opening it up, it's supposed to be expanding that quick, integrated Avid workflow to everything that Avid owns. And if they make that happen, it's a big if, but it's going to be really slick. You're going to be able to share whatever you want with people on your network with people out of your network, and it's all going to be relatively straightforward. And obviously, this might be for music people. You can also freeze tracks. That's sort of the idea of the interchanges. Like, okay, I'm going to freeze these three, send them to you. Um, But that also just means that you can freeze tracks, which people have wanted forever, I think. Well, I think that would be a great... Well, I can see it working with music, definitely for posts. Like, if I'm mixing something, and I'd love to have a sound designer online that I could say, okay, I need this, this, and this, and then he can get it to me as I'm mixing, and then before the end of whatever I'm working on, you know, it'll show up in my session, and then it'll... Yeah, you won't have to pull in ads, you won't have to stop yourself. You literally, he'll go, it's done, you can click, you know... Update new changes yeah. and it'll go, and yeah. you'll be ready to go. Because so I've kind of we kind of do that anyhow, except we use thumb drives and email and sure. attachments Dropbox and things like that. And ways to be yeah. able to Drop- share se- there's a huge. I mean, yeah, Dropbox especially when Dropbox yeah. came out, a lot of people use Dropbox as part of their their workflow. And as they're doing sessions, I mean, I worked on this really big um, video game campaign, and we were working with a really prominent um, um, sound designer and. It was all based around the Dropbox. Everybody had a Dropbox, and everybody was saving to the Dropbox. And then that's how we would get all our, the edits coming up. Yeah, but the one like thing that. you can't do in Pro Tools right now is both be working on the same session, which no. means at some point right. you always yeah. have to import either tracks or audio. Exactly. or Yeah, so. yeah the, the one thing that will really help with that, as long as you can keep the assets um, organized and then saved in the master session, so that you don't have to like open it up three days later and, and relink and, and you're yeah. relinking and you're trying to feel okay. Where is this asset? Where's the that? The most painful part of Pro Tools is like, oh, where is that? And that's, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. and that's the thing. That's where it's getting to sort of the edge of my knowledge because they said, and I had people tell me that understood this sort of stuff that like the new updates to ISIS and Interplay, even if you don't have the Avid hardware, right. are supposed to make a lot of that very seamless. Like if stuff hits your session, it's versioned and organized, and who created it, where it was created which computer, which session was open. If it's in another session, it'll reference that. Like, it's supposed to be really slick. But my knowledge there isn't great. Well, I hope it works, because it sounds like a really great idea, and in a perfect world, it'll work. (laughs) Because, um, you know... No, it'll be broken for at least four versions. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, no, I really do, because that's something that I think is really useful. And look, there could be careers out there for sound designers just being on call, being available, you know... For work that day for that session, you know, I can think of right now. Well, my good friend Brett um, Johns, who's actually been on the podcast, I've used him a couple of times where I've been working on something and I needed to beef up a, a title or something, and I've I've sent him the quick time and sent him you know the assets, the OMF, and he worked on it, and then he sent it back to me, and then I had to import it. It'd be great if we could all do it real time, and because the bummer about that is is if he goes down an avenue that I don't want him to go down. I won't know it until he's already at the end of the street because I'm working. And so once I import it, it's like, you know, okay, this is it. So hopefully, you know, you gave good direction, but you never know. You know, it's creative, so people can interpret things differently. But um, I have a question for you, Jeremy. So the customer association thing that you went to, what, what would you say the balance felt like between just like corporate 
marketing speak and actual real information you were interested in? Uh, the keynote was uh, jargon, and then all of the little stuff that happened after that was 80 or 90% useful because, the, like, me being relatively uh, uh, technology intelligent, I could go talk to the developers and go, okay, I'm aware that this is very early. Like, just show me what you can and where it's going, and we had like really intelligent conversations about, okay, what is this actually going to do? <coughs> Not selling me the new buzzword, which actually just means the same thing it meant before. And did they, have <coughs> you signed NDAs? Oh, uh, for the customer association? Mm-hmm. No, it's, I mean, there are parts, but you, I think, n- not you, Rob, you, anyone listening to this podcast can pay, I think, a hundred bucks and get onto their sort of feedback forums. Um, it's nothing like the DUC. It's not to discuss the like the technical issues. This is supposed to be like feedback on workflows and the way that... Um, They've actually figured out a way to get you to pay to, to do that job <laughs> for them. Yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, you know, come on, that's Avid. You know, building the company... I need to have the Rob Arbiter Customer Association. Yeah. One, uh, yeah, one customer back at a time. So. I'll let you join for 50 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, and so like any opinions there I won't share, but I, I will say... It struck me a lot of the new words uh, that they came up with felt really hard, like somebody on SNL making fun of corporate America. Uh, <laughs> that's that's a really uh, that's probably a bad place to to start at when watching that stuff. But uh, you can tell that I mean you should know. But the developers are really smart people. If you can just talk to them, right. you get really excited, and then sometimes you hear about people making decisions, and you want to. Kill people. But. <laughs> oh, Jeremy, I think you should just put a pin in it. You know, uh, you we've know, got I, a lot of win-win <laughs> synergy here that we have to uh, that we have to work on. You well, know, so. Jeremy, thank you so much for that, and I I don't want stop right now because <laughs> I don't want you to say anything that could <laughs> come back and haunt you. We but, need to have some theme music for like Jeremy on the street, and we send him out to infiltrate. I know. Our man in the street. I'm so proud of Jeremy. <laughs> I remember when he was just an email. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I remember listening to the podcast before I ever even got out here, and it would be like, after every trade show, regardless of which one it was, like seven of y'all would all come back and talk about all of the cool stuff. And so I got really excited about that. And was I literally the only one at NAB? And I wasn't even No, at no, I was there. Okay, was okay. There. All right, cool. I was like, man, I can't have been the only one that went. That would be- I, I was working, so... Well, shame on you. I know, I know. Well, hey, listen, we're going to take a break because that was really long. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about a lot of fun stuff. And we're going to visit here with Russ and get some great stories and, uh, yeah, a whole lot, a whole lot of good stuff. So uh, we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Westwave Audio. Have a question for the panel? Would you like to be a guest on the Audio Nowcast and live in the L.A. area? Email us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back to the Audio Nowcast. And uh, before the break, Jeremy was giving us the inside information. Really, it's not really inside. Uh, yeah, it got yeah. edited out, actually, so you, you don't get to hear it. <laughs> Jeremy's going to be real careful starting his car when he leaves tonight. <laughs> but, you no, know... No, I'm going to be really careful in, like, two weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's yeah. true. You've got a couple good weeks. Don't that's worry about right. it. You've got some time before this post. Um, 
But hey, really quick, let's just uh, let's just find out your reaction. Uh, we'll talk to Bobby here about the uh, Apple um, Beats uh, merger. Yes, it's quite curious, isn't it? It it really is. It re- I I don't understand. Okay, so uh, the rumor is, and I, I think the rumor is mostly true, that Apple will pay three point two billion dollars for Beats Electronics, which includes Beats headphones and all their accessories, plus Beats Music, which is their three-month-old streaming service that just came out. And the thought is, why would that happen? Why would they bother? Because, let's face it, Beats headphones aren't the best in the world. They're not. And uh, they're a fashion accessory. They're very good at that. Yep. Um, Maybe it's an entry into the urban world, but they don't really need that either. So it can't be that. And they're expensive. They're, they're very, expensive. Very, very, very dear. So then it maybe comes down to, is this about Beats Music? And a couple of things pop up. The first thing is Jimmy Iovine, who is the co-founder of Beats, actually went to Apple prior to the introduction of Beats Music. And they had big, long conversations. So Apple had a chance to buy in then probably for about half as much as they're paying now. And they passed. And about a month later, the Carlyle Group threw in $500 million into Beats Music, and Beats Music was introduced. And now, apparently, they have about 20,000, between ten and 20,000 subscribers, which isn't all that many. So why would Apple yeah, I still do this? Understand. There, there's some thought that perhaps it's uh, to get Jimmy Iovine. To do the deals that only Steve Jobs could have done before? That's right, because he's so well-connected. First of all, he's well-connected with uh, Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers, uh, Len Blavatnik, from who owns Warner's, is also an investor in Beats. Huh. Okay, so the only major label that he's not connected with is Sony Music, and Sony Music is in disarray, so you know no one's really connected with that. That doesn't matter, but... Um, you would think now. I, personally, I think the guy's going to cash out and he's going to disappear. You know, because he's going to make a whole lot of dough. On oh yeah. This. So you have to wonder now: why couldn't they do this on their own? Why couldn't Apple build a streaming service on their own? Well, they do iTunes Radio. iTunes Radio is a non-interactive service. It's different. Right, but I mean, you basically, you can design your radio station, and, and in some ways... Yeah, but, but here's the difference. Beats and Spotify are interactive streaming services, meaning that you can specify exactly what you want to right. listen to. Right, And that's different because it pays a different royalty rate. That's one thing. Um, but it's also a little bit more... Well, just to back up here. So you have to wonder, why does Apple want to do this, right? First of all, because um, their downloads are going in the toilet. The CD may be around longer than the, the download, huh. believe it or not. Downloads are down 18%. They were down 14% last year. So it, it's, they have to do something. Why didn't they think of this a year ago, two years ago, three years ago? Why? So th- there's a lot of questions and there's not a lot of answers why why they're doing this. That's you know that's really interesting to see, put in that perspective. In some ways, it kind of makes sense because you're only as good as your deal, you know. And especially with music and 
the labels are so guarded. So to be able to have somebody who can kind of pierce that wall. Well, see, they've pierced it already because Apple's always had you know good deals with everybody. Right. The difference is when if they're going to start an interactive service, right. they have to go back and do new deals on this. And that could be the thing that holds them up. Now, if they buy Beats Music, the deals are made already. It's true. So that's the only thing I can think that kind of fits in all of this. Well, and also, isn't Beats Electronics something like a billion-dollar-a-year business? A bill point two, yeah. So that's pretty substantial on top of it. It's substantial, but um, many people think it's peaked. Well, that's possible. It's true. That, that, yeah. And why would they want that? It doesn't fit the Apple brand whatsoever. So you know no, that's and they're not that really for what they charge for them. It's a fashion accessory. Yeah, yeah, they are not that good. They're not that good. Now, then the other thing you might think, well, wait a second, they have manufacturing, but so does Apple. Apple has no problem with manufacturing. They don't need. They know how to make that. headphones. They don't have they a make every every you know. It's not engineering. They have great engineers. Beats does, and so it's not. They're not buying engineering talent. So. Well, we'll have to uh, we'll have to monitor the situation. That's really interesting. Thank you for giving us that uh, a new way to look at this. Yeah. Here's here's a question before before we wrap it up. Could it be that Apple is working on their own streaming service and they bought Beats to kill them dead? Is that a possibility? No, I mean the thought was that Beats wasn't going to survive anyway over the long term because their pockets are their pockets are deep, but they're not deep enough. And they don't have enough subscribers, so the thought was they had a year, and then it was going to get really, really tough. Yeah. So what's the difference in the deal that iTunes Radio has versus Beats? I'm not very familiar with the way that those work. Is well, there? Well, again, the, there's all sorts of different license deals that, that a label will do. One is for downloads, which is completely different than one for non-interactive streaming. Non-interactive is just like radio. And what that means is you have no control over what you're listening, except you, you have, I think, six replays, rewinds an hour that you can do, right? right yeah. But you can't access what you want. So that pays out at a different royalty rate. So what ends up, and it pays out at a different royalty rate to everybody, to the record labels, to the songwriters, to the artists, everybody gets paid on a different royalty rate. Now, the one that pays the higher royalty rate is the interactive one, like Spotify or like Beats Music. And you'd have to go back and around and do another deal for that. So, so by buying Beats, then they don't have to redo that deal. No, they can they can hang with Beats deal as long. Now, who knows for how long that is and where it has to be renewed? So that could be something in there too. Right. What if it only lasts for two years? You know, then it doesn't help them. So you'd have to think it was long term for them to be even interested. Wow. And the thing is, also Beats had never marketed to just like Middle America as being your music service. Maybe they didn't get a chance to yet, but it's not like, I mean, there would still be a lot of work to do for Beats to become the de facto streaming service for, for well, mainstream America. One of the big problems is it doesn't have a free tier, so you can't try it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you take the deals, take the technology, rebrand it with the iTunes, all those, well, it, all those have been worked out. I mean, basically... It's just hard to believe they couldn't do it themselves. Yes. I know. Right, I know, but, but maybe BC, they figured well, that's what Jimmy Iovine is worth. I'll tell you what, we'll keep an we'll keep an eye on this whole thing. We got to move on, but um, it's really interesting to to um, see what's happening 
and maybe we'll know more by the next podcast. You know? Maybe by the time people hear this podcast, it'll be a, a done right. deal, maybe right? We'll know. <laughs> hey, you may know right now what's happening. <laughs> well, hey, listen, we got to move. We got to move forward because we got a lot to get to. Um, and you know what? We got to visit with with Russell here. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the things you've worked on because uh, you've done some really great sessions. You've worked with some really great artists, and I don't even know where to start, Russell. Um, started in 75. I was hired at a place called Davlin Sound Studios, which is brand new, just opened by a gentleman by the name of Leonard Kovner, who I still see regularly. And uh, it was a very hip studio. I'd never seen a recording studio in my entire life. And to see Davlin with suede walls and um, very, very... Leonard had some very, very hip ideas. Um, uh, Trident B-range consoles, Studer A880s. B-range. Uh, yeah, B-range, you know. And I think he was trying to attract a certain clientele. Uh, a certain, he, he attracted Ken Scott, yeah. you know, who you know. Yeah. Where uh, was the studio? It was around on Lancashire in uh, Universal City. Oh. And people said, you know, go ahead. Nobody's going to drive to the Valley because at the time <laughs> there weren't that many studios. You know? mm-hmm. um, everything was in Over the Hill, right? Uh so um, I got my start basically because um, Leonard and I got to talking, and I had no background whatsoever in recording, but I did have a, uh, a 12-gauge riot gun, and there, were st- <laughs> and, there were, and there were no locks on the doors, um, the importance being that get the studio running first. We'll worry about the alarm system. So for two weeks, I slept on a, in a sleeping bag on a concrete floor with a riot gun, a riot gun with a double-lot buck, and you know, that's how I got my start, actually. That's one of the better stories I've ever heard. Yeah, <laughs> right. career start. I mean, I had I was actually chauffeuring at the time at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and you know, carrying a gr- uh, carrying a gun was in a recording. She was a lot hipper, I think, at that point. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it started with a bang. I mean, Richard Perry came in with Art Garf- Garfunkel, um, Melissa Manchester, I think, uh, uh, Steely Dan, of course. Who I actually couldn't stand at that point. I was, really? I was hoping for the Stones. I was praying to whatever God. What, I what sessions were? were uh, Royal Scam. Oh, boy. for months. I've never. I'd never seen it to that point. How many rolls of two inch were literally working their way outside the control room down the hallway? They never reused anything. There must have been fifty, sixty rolls of two inch. And wow. Then they never used a damn thing from those sessions. They just moved on. In fact, for weeks it was like. Uh, a literal who's who of musicians, uh, uh, bass players. You name them, they came in, and Walter or Gary or Donald walking to the door saying, eh, you know, you know, cutting it tonight or whatever it was. I mean, James Jamerson. Uh, they usually went with, wow. uh, who was the big bass player? I forget. Uh, Chuck Rainey. Chuck Rainey. Yeah. yeah, they always went with Chuck, you know. And and every drummer, and John Guerin, uh, Jeff Beccaro, God rest his soul. I mean, wow. the cream of the crop that was in it. And this was the early days, you know. And were you? Uh, I was still a gopher at that point, just you know, hosing down the place, from all, the, <laughs> all, all the blood and detritus, you know. Uh. And, and, and but uh, um, yeah, worked under Len, Leonard's tutelage uh, for a number of years, and then moved on to Kendon Recorders and got a taste of that, and went back to Davlin, and went over to uh, uh, Chateau Studio Fifty Five. I mean, all these studios are gone now. It's a shame. I uh, met Ken Scott at uh, Chateau, and I was how I met Ken was just basically at a. Uh, Jeff Beck concert, I was sitting next to an English lady who kept on saying to this guy she was with, Ken this and Ken that with this strong English accent. And I leaned over and I said, you're not Ken Scott, are you? And he said, yes. And I said, I work at Davlin Sound Studios. Here's my card. We'd like to have you come down. And he actually booked some time. So it was, it was rather a feather in my cap. And I mean, uh, 
it was Davlin was set up like an, an English uh, recording uh, studio where you you didn't look out into the room; you looked kind of off to the side, off right. filter. And, and and Ken liked it. Uh, working with Ken was really interesting. Later on at Chateau, uh, he was never a big fan of automation. He would mix in uh, one minute increments, and, and so he'd mix like in sections and run it right to quarter inch. And then what scared the hell out of me was the fact that he never used a typical razor blade. He used the Studer internal razor blade. And I actually said, what are you doing? Do you, know, you, do you really know what you're doing with that blade? Because I'd never seen anybody edit with a Studer blade before. And here I was questioning Ken. Right? <laughs> but he was great to work with, yeah. You know. So wait, you do a minute, you chop it, and you physically take yeah. it? Yeah, he'd make his mixes by, by taking the chorus and the verse and whatever and, and editing. Cutting them together. Wow. A lot of, char- lot of charm marks on the like, console. That's like, woo, woo, woo. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's a, how it was done. There trying was, to you find know, that one little, woo, okay, little valley cut there, go to the next little, man, that's. That's how it was done. I mean, um, there might have been automation. There might have been knee cam at that point, but Ken didn't. And Ken would never have the artist in during the mix. That was part of the deal. They weren't allowed to come in and screw things up. Wow. Yeah, so. If only. If yeah. only. <laughs> So you were uh, basically just a gopher back then, and then well, working then, your way you up know, into yeah, the- I left. I left Davlin and became a second at Kendon, and then went back to Davlin again, and then moved on to a lot of studios. Just kind of like get pu- I got pulled out of places. Like artists would say, "Listen, there's a new studio. Would you like to come over with us?" And like with Toto, um, I followed them over to Studio Fifty Five and, and did the first record with those guys. Really, you I am did you, second. You tracked that record, or second anything? with Tom Knox. Yeah, wow, that was a lot of fun. I mean, those. <laughs> Those guys. What was that like? I saw amazing. I saw. I was so fortunate back in the day for the Nam show, where they used to have those little Nam bands, and every little booth would have like the the jam session. I saw him play with uh, at the uh, at the Pasty booth, and it was amazing. Who, Jeff? Yes, Jeff? Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. It was like my second Nam ever, and it was just it was phenomenal. I mean, he had such a amazing pocket. I mean, it was just it was just. I sat there for hours with Tom Knox, you know, when there was nobody actually booked in the studio, and Leonard would give uh, basically the keys to me and said, you know, David, Paige, and, and Jeff are coming in to do demos all night. And I go, yeah. And I'll, my only thing was to rewind the, re, you know, the, uh, the slap machine until I found out that I actually turned over the reels rather than rewind it all the time. I, I figured that out for myself. I thought <laughs> myself quite a genius, you know. <laughs> but you, you knew something was going on. And then when, you know, um, uh, um, Oh my God! Uh, the guitar player, Luke, Steve Lukather, yeah. came in. You just knew that this was something big, something really special. And was it as wild back then as yeah, you hear no, all it, the- there's no, there's no wild. As far as I know, there's no wild now. There is no <laughs> wild. It's a business. It, it was fun then. You know, you go. You know, when the client would leave. That's when the seconds would come out of the woodwork and get, yeah. their, get their machine cassette machines, and we'd we'd do our own mixes. <laughs> you know, I remember uh, the studio I worked for called Cran. I remember uh, Springsteen came in and he got the idea, so that wouldn't happen. He brought a safe, and the the the, the 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 masters were locked up in the safe all night, so that you know there weren't any you know odd versions going out because that's what everybody was hoping for. Like, I hope they don't go late tonight. What time do I got to come in? Do I have time to do a couple of roughs? And there are thousands of Steely Dan cassettes and Toto cassettes out there. Now, did they when they tracked? Were, were they playing together, or did they? Oh yeah, it? oh it was all live, all live. There were yeah no. I mean, the guitar solo for "Hold the Line" right, right. was an overdub. Oh, I love that song. That was basically two uh, Fender Princeton amps on these big risers. 
that were erected for some unknown reason. They sounded better up in the air. That was the, the two stereo amps for the guitar so for that. Remember that? But it was all it was all live. I mean, you just, you know, when they came in for the playback, it was like just you could cut it with a knife. It was very magical. You know, and, and everything those guys worked on. I mean, they were the, as far as I was concerned, the section. Wow. There was nobody better. I mean, there was Russ Kunkel and those cats, but yeah. Yeah. as far as I was concerned, Jeff. It's a shame he's no longer with us. But now, did you have to like with Jeff's kit and stuff in a second have to mic it up? I'd have to and, well, whatever what the engineer wanted, but you got to know that you know the right. limbs of what everybody. Ken was very particular about taking the front head off a kick, and you'd you'd, you'd uh, hang an RE twenty in there with fishing line, you know, and then seal it back up, and then seal you know put some uh, packing blankets and some sandbags up against it. He had his own way of doing things. Wow! But all these mixers that I worked with, it was like they really relied on the sound of the instrument and mic placement. Especially with Roger Nichols, he wouldn't go too far left or right, you know, with EQ. If it wasn't working, then we'd change a mic or change a drum or change something. You know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't go really crazy with EQ. So you win half your battles just on the tracking, just, mm. just yeah, oh yeah. I mean, once it was locked in, it was locked in, and then with, with Steely Dan, you know, once they locked the drums in, then it was overdub city. Wow, those guys were not, not, not only with Toto. What was your Favorite session that you worked with back in that day? The most fun sessions I really ever had were with Country Dates, like with Merle Haggard. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that, that was, talk about loose. <laughs> Guns and you name it. It was a cornucopia of dogs and everything <laughs> illegal. I've never seen, I mean, I've been on a lot of rock and roll dates. Right. Nothing compares to a Country Date as far as <laughs> illegal substances. And I still hear all of that music coming out of your house oh, all the time. I, you know, I, I do a lot of listening to Pandora, and that's the only time I hear my stuff. <laughs> you know, awesome. I mean, that stuff bought my first two houses. You know, I mean, what was the craziest, craziest session you ever worked? Well, I can't really say. Oh. It involved involved a secretary and and wedges uh, locked underneath the door so nobody could come in. <laughs> And all, if this gets out, we're all going to lose our jobs. <laughs> that kind of thing. Wow. But Merle was, Merle was just a classic. I mean, when I, he, I just finished a, a country date all day with a guy named Snuff Garrett. Uh, and uh, I got a call from the front desk saying, you've got another date tonight. I'm going, oh, man, you've got to be kidding. And when they said it was Merle, I said, thank God I wore my boots. You know, I mean, I knew when he walked in, it was, I mean, what he asked me was, he asked me, he says, you one of the engineers, and I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "Threw me a bag of this Humboldt County pot. I don't know if I can say that, but it's a story." And he said, "Get to Roland." That was like, <laughs> <laughs> that was the first, you know. But he was just, I did like almost nine records with him, and flaw, I mean, the musicianship was just flawless. It was his guys; they all were rehearsed, you know, two or three takes, bang, sent them all off in the bus to the Howard, the Beverly Garland, and Merle would turn into George Benson after a few hits, and you know. <laughs> But yeah. Snuff Garrett, though, the, talk oh. about another legend. There. Oh, Snuff was Snuff was amazing. Snuff, it was a tracking for a day and a half. Steve Dorff was in on this too. Uh, he had a bunch of riders with him, a bunch of ex Arizona state troopers who he, likes to, he used to tell his stories, his you know his cowboy stories and whatever. Uh, uh, the playback sessions were fun at, at Snuff's house. We'd have rap sessions, and he'd invite Roy Rogers and. And, and Snuff and Roy would slap on a pair of six guns and have quick draw contests. And <laughs> you talk about Roy was very quick. There was nothing, you know, that was the real deal. I mean, they, would, they were slapping leather, boy. It was amazing. But Snuff, it was like a real, he had it all, it went like you were mixing. You were mixing like Friday and you were with John Golden at uh, 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 the 
mastering session on Saturday morning. It was done. Five days, boom, yeah. that's it. You know. Snuff was also the first producer that managed to get a royalty. Really? No, producers didn't get Bobby a royalty. I, I think it was. He got a penny a record. Yeah. Wow. And that was a big deal. That that was groundbreaking at that yeah, point. Yeah, Red Roses for Blue Lady, or uh, what was it? Uh, yeah, which is a big hit yeah, yeah, for him. He, big, big hit. Yeah. You know, I mean, he had, I don't know what happened to Snuff. I think he's moved out of the state. Yeah, yeah. I miss him in a way. You know, he was, it was no nonsense with Snuff. You know, if there was a break, you dare not pick up a cash box because he'd, he'd throw you off the date. Yeah. Like, you're not paying enough attention. Yeah. It's a break. <laughs> You know, Russell, you've worked with all of these phenomenal bands, but I think by far the most important and the most special relationship of your career was with Roger Nichols. Oh, Roger Nichols, yeah. Could you, could you tell us all of those amazing stories? Definitely missed. Didn't like him when I met him. Thought he was a bit of a big head because uh, he had, he had uh, being that Davlin was my very first studio and I was really loyal to it. Anybody brought in a different monitoring system, I said, well, what, are these, what does he know? But, you know, Roger, you know, he didn't get the name Immortal for nothing. But he bought in these magnaplanes, which didn't sound incredibly well, but he had everybody snowballed on them. Magnaplanes. Magnaplanes, yeah. yeah. And, Electrostatic uh, speakers. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And which always it, sounded weird to me. But yeah, yeah, they yeah. were weird. And then, um, um, again, I, I wasn't really a um, – uh, I, I was just getting to be a second engineer on Roll Scam. Uh, and then a number of years went by, and I, I found myself at uh, Amigo, uh, Warner Brothers Studios. And uh, I don't know what I was working on, but they, uh, Lee Hirschberg called me in his office. He says uh, – Got Roger Nichols coming in next week, and you're doing it. And I'm, I just went home and read like every REP I could find, basically to find out what he liked to eat. That was the surefire <laughs> way, you know, which was always a king cheese fat burger made his. I mean, Roger could tell if the burger was off by the weight. And I, 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 <laughs> no, I, no I'm, he's probably the only one that on a, in a Grammy award speech, you know, when he got a, a Grammy, that he thanked Fat Burger and never had to pay for another <laughs> Fat Burger. But he, uh, you know, he would again. That was the whole thing about you know coming up from the ranks, from being a gopher to a second. That if you couldn't get a food order, you had no business in the control room. So when I would tell my seconds, I go, "Here's what this man wants. Do not screw it up. You're only paying for it." You know, and write this stuff down. And I, there's been more occasions where Roger would pick up the hamburger and just by sheer weight alone go, "It's wrong," and he would literally fling it in the uh, the gopher's face and send him off and do it right, get it right. If you can't get a burger order right, you have no business. But Roger was really funny. He had his, uh, um, especially when he worked with Walter Becker, um, and this was an Amigo where everybody would be clamoring for the echo chambers, and we'd have to like almost like super glue the patch pet, the patch cords because they were ours; they couldn't be touched. And I was mm-hmm. constantly, you know, inspecting and making sure nobody would mess with our settings and whatever. And, and it was, it was th- those are the days. You know, there wasn't a, lo- a lot of gear to go around. So if I knew Roger was coming in, I'd start grabbing stuff roger was also notorious for throwing cassette machines because they would never play at speed well uh, <laughs> this is way before dad and everything else right yeah but you you couldn't turn your back on roger there's some stories there was that one story i wanted to write in the the book you know that alfred wouldn't let me because there was certain words i that i had to, they wouldn't let me use but you know, I don't know if I can use them here. Can I use them here? Can I use words like scrotum? No? Sure, right. you can. Go no, ahead. It was, it was, it was one particular story that I told at his uh, eulogy was, uh, and how I got my nickname Sparky, was uh, I was doing punch-ins on this John Denver record. And every time I punched in, it was a glitch. Just went to the monitors, didn't go to tape. But it still freaked everybody out. And Roger and I were fighting over it. It was a 32-track uh, digital, uh, 3M. And I go, if I can't do this, I'm, I'm going to go home. I go, give me something to do. So eventually he says, well, the only way you're going to, you know, um, 
proceed and, and work on this project if, is if we, we ground you. And I said, well, all right. So Jerry Garza, who was another mixer, was the mixer on the project, um, they grabbed me and they were going to drop my jeans and attach an alligator clip to my scrotum. <laughs> and that was the only way I was going to get through the date. Now, funny story is that this, we, we then, uh, Amigo was supposed to set up a mixing room for us with an SSL and it wasn't going to happen. So we ended up mixing in Lahaina Sound, uh, George Benson studio. In Maui, oh, yeah, yeah. And brought everything under the sun with us. We had such a cartridge bill, it was ridiculous. We bought like three 32-track machines just to be on the safe side. We had like nine, uh, eight, eight pairs of Vasonic 9000s because those babies blew all the time and all this outboard gear and notch filters. Anyway, the same thing happened. We, we flew over um, uh, Jim Horn to do sax overdubs, and I'm doing punch-ins, and it's the same glitch, right? Uh, now, years later, I got into post. Uh, Roger's actually staying at my house, and this is like maybe six years had gone by. Since then, I'd had testicular cancer, okay? Now everybody knows. And uh, 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 I, Roger was working down at the old Kendon Studios, asked me to come down and hang out. He was doing a John Denver session, so there was that same machine. And I said, oh, give me a go for old time's sake. And I'm doing punch-ins, and it's immaculate. It's flawless, not a glitch. And Roger turned around, and he says, good thing they got the right testicle. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. That was it. I mean, he was amazing. I mean, there was not a thing that Roger didn't know. I mean, it was hard to call him out on anything. You had to be really sure. Any question posed to him had to be posed in a certain way. And usually half the, halfway through the question, you kind of figure it out and say, never mind, I got to go. I figured it out, <laughs> which, is, which is intent. You know, he, very smart guy. Very smart guy. Wow. And definitely missed. Wow. Yeah. Let me ask you, how, how was it working with uh, John Denver? He, a, a prince. Nice guy. Really another tragic story, you know. Uh, I remember we were mixing in Lahaina, and uh, John wouldn't always stick around for the mixes. So, you know, it's getting on at night, and John wants to go back to his condo or something. And he turned to Roger, and he says, you know, don't be here all night, and don't give me any more of that Steely Dan shit. (laughs) (laughs) And we just looked at each other and said, like, Roger's not going to leave unless it's sounding the best it can sound, you know. I mean, we, we... what Roger actually set up one of my guest bedrooms to mix at, and, and that guest bedroom sounded great. Wow. I mean, you could cut it with a knife. It sounded, I mean, whatever he did, wherever he went, there was such a depth with Roger's mixing. That did, did he have a, a set way that he mixed all the time? Not or really. It, or is it just kind of a feel thing? It, it, didn't matter the con- it didn't matter the console. You know, it didn't matter if it was an SSL or a Harrison at, at Warner's. He worked, you know, uh, as long as it went on clean... And this is, this is the beginning stages of Wendell, you know, when yeah, he was saying, yeah. you know, before anybody. And the way he was writing the, the code into Wendell, nobody knew what he was doing. Nobody even asked. He, he walked out of the room, like, whatever he's doing, he's, like, he's, on another, he's on a mission, this man. He's nuts. Can you tell us what Wendell is, Russell? Um, it was like the first uh, real drum sampling unit. You know, I spent him. many, many sleepless nights messing with the Wendell. The, what, the, the, the standalone drum machine? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. All right, but this was pre-that. What was it, what this was was this, it based this, on hardware? Oh, I don't know. That's where I don't know what he did. No, well, well, <laughs> I don't of, know what he did. One of the that. One of the cool things about Roger, though, if you go back to when he was at ABC and doing all those records at the Grassroots, and, and you listen Zager and Evans, and, Zager and yeah. Evans, and you listen to those records now, and they sound so modern. Mm-hmm. They sound so. He was so far ahead of his time. Huh. Uh, and next time, like the Grassroots, right? You, just listen to how good that sounds. 
great. Yeah, great, great. It's amazing. Now, being a second, um, explain what some of your responsibilities and duties. Well, basically, you know, you were uh, there were some seconds who didn't give a shit, and there was guys like who really wanted to make a dent and and really wanted to go places, so they would get their crack of dawn. um, Maybe if there was if the room was empty the night before, set up the night before. I mean, the people I trained, I would say, make coffee the night before because if you, you uh, on the way in, if you roll under a gas truck and taste your own blood, we're not doing your job for you. You know, get everything the night done the night before, test everything out, then retest it in the morning. So if I could set up a date, even if the you know the drum kit wasn't there, at least the mics were there, right? And and everything was coming into the console, and I would you know line up everything on the console, and it wasn't until you know like the drums came and say it was uh, uh, whoever the drum was or. Uh, Oh God, I forget his name now. I should know this. I'm having one of those moments. Um, uh, Paul Jameson, right? Who was a drum, a big drum tech roadie. Um, I'd have him slam on the skins, and, and I'd start getting sounds for Roger. What I thought Roger might like, you know, taking a wild guess. Maybe I, you know, be close or not. So you did everything possible. Line tape machines, you know, just get everything ready. Just get everything ready. You know, bring bring extra limiters in if you could, especially if it was a, a big studio like Warner Brothers, where you have this huge bay of gear you'd bring everything in whether you need it or not because if one went bad you wanted to spare because clients got really pissed off if they didn't have what they wanted you know at hand so you know that's a lot of attention you know i mean it, it, it depends on how much you want to apply to the gig yeah you know you know what's amazing is i think with a lot of studios um closing you know people aren't being exposed to a really good proper session where you have a really good second. That doesn't and, exist. And because I, I remember back early in my career, um, I was teching and I was drum teching for um, Natalie Cole at the time, and she was doing the Unforgettable sessions. And we'd go to Capitol Records, uh, where her father used to record also. Right. And I remember, you know, doing the loading of the drums. And man, those seconds there, they already had all the mics. For the drums were already set up, were already cabled, ready to go. Literally, they were just waiting for the drums to get up, and boom, boom! It was like That's a. Right. It has I, to be. Yeah, they were Time just is money. so on on the ball. And actually, the last place I saw a really good second was over at um, when I went to Ben's place um, for the um, the Sunny Landreth sessions that I videoed. The uh, the second there, um, Sorrel, she was she was. On the ball. I mean, it's so great to see people who are really passionate about their gig, but also really good. Um, I mean, you have to do gig. a lot of second guessing. I mean, I would, I would read Rogers, you know, just, you know, just his physicality of like, you know, is he hungry? You know, or does he need something moved? Right. And then you jump at it. I mean, I did a lot of work with uh, Jeff Emmerich and George Martin. Right. And I made them nervous because it was like my feet were always in the chocks and I was ready to race out to the room if I thought that maybe something needed to be changed. And I remember Jeff pulling me aside saying, we don't work that way. They're more relaxed. Hmm. You know, because time was money. Right. You know, the clock was ticking, you know, and nobody wants to wait. And, the, you know, the second really has a lot of responsibility. I mean, he's got to know the room almost as good as the mixer. Yeah, and all the gear. You know, and he's got to – and you can't be like, you know, you know, having a chin wag at the back or reading a magazine. You should be over the – you're sitting on the engineer's shoulder, and if he's, you know, hitting buses that are dirty, you – well, let's cross patch to another module and let's get it done way right. before he even thinks about it. Yeah. And that's how you're going to be asked. Say if, the, if that client comes in, whether it's the mixer or the producer for another album in six months or a year later, they're going to ask for you. And you're, basically, you're, you're setting up some security that you're going to be working. 
you know, that's how it worked. Oh, and also if something goes wrong at the studio and, and like all of a sudden the session has to stop and it really comes down to the second to have to figure it out because right. he may know the room best. Oh, it's sphincter factor time. It's, yeah, that's start, crazy it, pressure. It, it's really, and, and of course, you know, um, I, I, I was trained in, uh, in kind of the British uh, scheme of things where I was an attack. You know, I called maintenance. I'm, I'm not going to waste time with this. I got to draw the line somewhere. I, you know, I've got to get some sleep. You know, but that's right. how it was. You know, I mean, and again, if um, a certain piece of gear broke down and we expected to fix it in the morning, if it wasn't, you know, say Roger would look at me and I go, "Don't look at me. Go call Lee. Call Lee Lurchberg. He'll complain to the maintenance guys right. you know, or Chet Himes." Well, I just remember, you know, back in the day, the seconds having their track sheets, all this paperwork, and oh, yeah. and putting the board back, you know, zeroing the board back because they had a session. You know, there was a night session the day before. And man, that's a lot of. I was knowledge. good at zeroing. Uh, um, Nothing about being a second, especially at Amigo. I mean, there was just so much gear laying around. And Michael Boddicker used to have the cream of the crop. He was a big synthesizer keyboard guy. And I think at the time he was working with Maurice Scharr. And he had every keyboard, stuff that wasn't even out. He was the king of cartage. Yeah, he was. He was the king of cartage. And I remember working with Roger on on this John Demmer session. And uh, Robbie Boddicker was the – no, Robbie Buchanan was the uh, synth player. And they couldn't get this part. And Robbie said – if I could have this piece of gear, this keyboard, I could do it. And I go, I know where to get that. And we broke into Boddicker's office. <laughs> and literally razor bladed the box. Hadn't even been opened yet. I don't know what it was. You know, something from Yamaha. We lifted it, wheeled it in, did the overdub, put it back in the box, rolled up the cables, just as it, just as it, like, like it came out of the factory in Tokyo. Roger was really good at re-rolling cables. You know, and then scotch taping it up, and no one was ever the wiser. Wow. You know. You know. Wow. There was a great um, – I did a few things with Luther Vandross, and the night manager there, a guy named uh, uh, William Maloof, used to drive a hearse. And uh, uh, in the hearse was a casket. In the casket was a dummy. And I remember Lu- Luther wandering out there one night and just walking in completely as white as a sheet because who the hell is driving a hearse with a casket <laughs> and a body inside? <laughs> you know, those are, those t- I don't think those times happen anymore. I think those are, that's definitely over, you know, the big studio days. It's well, yeah. some of that's still in post, mm-hmm. just because. Well, post just because of how big the crews are coming in. Like if you've got directors and producers and blah 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 blah. Like I'm, uh, it's a different terminology, but I'm effectively what sounds like a second. Like I either have to be reading somebody's mind right. or fixing something. Yep. And then there's engineers that I refer to, and everybody's got like I've got a different set of clients. Like I deal with the supervisor, manager type people, and then the mixers are dealing with uh, the director and the creative type clients, and like. It's this whole big political mess. It sounds very similar to some of the stories you were just telling. At Amigo uh, Studio A, the bigger the rooms, uh, got a, a gentleman named uh, Michael Wagner, German um, engineer producer, uh, was doing Metallica, and everybody was terrified to walk through the room itself to get through the other studio, Studio B or C, or or to change the echo uh, echo settings. That's where all the patchway was. Right. And uh, you'd call ahead and you go, Mike, I'm coming through to tell them not to be playing. You know, if they were doing big guitar solos or whatever. And they go, no, everything's cool. Come on in. And they'd wait for me to hit dead center, and then somebody would just go, bang. <laughs> and you'd literally be flattened. Mike had, I, I've never seen walls of effects gear like Mike Wagner had on his stage. You couldn't see the console. It was wow. like, you couldn't see him. It was just like, just stacked up. More patch, the patch, patch bay was full. There were no more holes. 
I didn't see the point in that. <laughs> that was the you equivalent know. of the Mercury bundle back. And then. he used to listen so <laughs> exactly. he, used to, he used to listen so loud. It's like I don't know how people, you know. I mean, we we have to tell him to turn it down because we could hear him in the other room if we were mixing. Wow. It was so loud. <laughs> Whereas we're doing John Denver, right? So it's Rocky Mountain High. Country Road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> With Metallica next door. <laughs> That's funny. You know, and then Ricky Lee Jones is in the other room or, or Mike McDonald's in another room. It was that kind of – that was a great studio. There was always something going on down there. Wow. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. Wow. Each studio has its own, you know, its own story, you know. You know, it's really interesting. There's there's not a lot of studios left, especially in, in L.A. Not there's, like that, yeah. There is still some, but not like... Everyone I've mentioned but, is yeah, gone. Yeah. I mean, Britannia was a great studio. It was owned by Tom Jones yeah. and Gordon Mills. Wonderful place. They're always afraid to spend money there. We had no effects here whatsoever. Wow. Had some great chambers, you know, and it was I think it was built as a tax dodge because Gordon was always getting kicked out because Rod Stewart was going to take up his time at Cherokee or, or Devonshire. So he said, well, hell with it. I'm going to build my own studio. You know, uh, so we had Tom, and Tom would only come in for like two days a year. He'd do two takes. They were absolutely flawed. You couldn't tell the difference. He was like Sinatra. He would do two takes every tune, and then he'd be up having some dinner at 9 o'clock and opening up, you know, $300 bottle of wine. That was his idea of recording. Wow. You know. Russ, that, those are awesome stories, you know. And There's more. There's some more. <laughs> we're going to have to bring you back because, unfortunately, we're, we're going really long. And you know what? We're not going to get to the uh, – Working with clients oh, I like sorry. I wanted. No, this was awesome. I'll come back. I, I I would, can I, we, I, I, can I, we get one more story in before we absolutely. go? Then, if we're not right. going to do clients, you, um, you just sort of nonchalantly dropped the names Jeff Emmerich oh, yeah, and that. George Martin. I was I was working on a jingle date one morning in Britannia. Okay, minding my own business as usual, and the whole operation at Britannia was very strange. It was like working. Like, they all came from Chadneys. Like our front de- instead of having a good looking. Wand, we had this nice little old lady that was like the hostess at Chadney's right. with, you know, with the menus in her hand, like a party of two. <laughs> and, and, and none of them knew anything about anything. And so I get this call on the intercom, Russ, when you're done you know, tearing down, we have a meeting. And I walked in and they go, well, yeah, we got a booking in for a month and you're on it. And I was the only guy. Of course I'm going to be on it. Right? <laughs> and uh, I said, who's the client? And they go, American. I went, oh. God, the Hebrews, why do you mock me? Why can't I work with somebody? And I go, well, who, who's, uh, who's producing? And they go, uh, uh, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Emmerich. And I damn near lost it. I mean, my knees buckled, right? Did I say George Martin or Jeff Emmerich? No, you said Jeff Emmerich. Oh, it's George that. Martin. Yeah. And I just completely went into a panic. And the studio manager, I mean, this guy had been around for a long time. I won't mention his name. And he, and he says, what's the problem? And I said, George Martin, Beatles don't ring a bell? And he says, Russ. Uh, Brian Epstein produced the Beatles, and I'm going. I'm working with idiots. <laughs> and, I, and I got. I got. I, I mean, I'm there's This is Bumpkinville. There, there's. I'm working with simpletons. And I got on the phone with Gordon, right, who I'd never met, right. And I said, "We have a problem." He says, "Yeah, I hear you have a great booking." I said, "They don't have a tea set here. I don't expect George is going to be drinking tea out of a sorry mug." <laughs> right now, I've got the tea. I can steal it. My, my parents are English, so I had the tea down. But I said, "You have an account at Bullocks. Call him. I'm coming down to buy a tea set." And then I get back to them. I get and by the way, who's engineering? And they said Jeff Emmerich. And I said, "It's never going to get any better than this." <laughs> and actually, they were the easiest guys to please. Wow. The only thing is, I remember doing guitar overdubs, and I over anticipated on the punch, and I looked over at George, and George says, "Damn it, you missed the punch." 
And I felt like going into the, the, the nearest tape locker with a Luger and blowing my brains out. <laughs> I, I, never thought, I, I didn't think I was ever... After that, I go, I'm never going to work in this town again. I blew the punch with him, of all people. You know? <laughs> and there's no undo back then. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? It's a great story now, because if you had made it, you wouldn't have a story about yeah, right, right, the punch. Right. What's the difference between him, uh, Jeff Emmerich, and Ken Scott? Um... Oh, the, the, Jeff was, was just so relaxed, and and so so was Ken. Yeah, you know, but different style, techniques though. Since they both came from Abbey Road, but they both have a different sound. Oh, absolutely. Right? You know, I mean, you know, I think Jeff was there because of George. I think it was just like you know something to do. Whereas Ken, he was in charge. He was the captain. I mean, you know, he he knew going in exactly what he wanted. You know, and I loved watching him work, especially with that A range, yeah. that Trident. I mean, I, I like Ken. I like watching you know watching him work. Um, it, you know, it, it was America. It was like John Denver. I mean, how much really? Yeah. It's it, it's going to speak for itself. You know, it's not going to be overlaid with effects and you know gear and whatever. It's just going to be very straightforward. They eventually mixed it Montserrat, the America record, which again is no longer with us. You know, I actually got married a few years later and met up with George in, in London and got a full on tour of it at Abbey Road. I mean, like from him and Ken Townsend and all oh boy. Guys. That's awesome. Yeah, that was really cool. You know, so yeah, I was I was very fortunate to work with some of these guys. You know, you know, guys I wish I'd worked with and I didn't. You know, guys that are no longer with us. I'm missing miss Roger a lot. You know, it's he made a real big dent in me. You know, wow. So, well, I'll well, think of I'll think of a few few more if you invite me down for the next. Yeah, no, we're gonna we're gonna invite you back, man. This, this is this is. I mean, there's so many different avenues in this. First of all this great people that you worked with and the great sessions, but also, you know, it really speaks a lot about work ethic about working your way up and what the value of being a second or being well, a you, you had to come in again. You had to come in, not only set up the room, you had to also align maybe two twenty fours if it was a 48 track session. And that, right. that took a while, especially in full, you know, playback and record, right. you know, and you know, the great story about Steely Dan and how they erased, uh, uh, uh was it a 19? I don't remember which song it was. No, it was. Uh, it was. Um, Wait, that wasn't your. No, that wasn't me. That, that, actually, that, <laughs> that wasn't his. That punch. happened in New York, but the guy literally erased like night twenty, almost the whole tune because he went over the record pad. That's before they started separating the masters from the record. Yeah, pads. right. Wow. Yeah, it was. Um, second arrangement was the tune. Wow. And I, I would have left town. Yeah, <laughs> I would have been on the first bus. And Roger told me the story how they came in and listened to one K tone and then went into the tune. And then Donald came in and heard it and turned around and walked out, and that was it. That was going to be the tune better than Hey 19. So, wow. Yeah. Well, that was an ultimate screw up. I mean, <laughs> if, if there yeah. ever was a screw up, that's the yeah, one. that's, that's like the industry, that's the gold standard. Yeah, not, what not to do, you know? <laughs> I mean, really, after that, everybody started taking because you'd print tones and then you'd have like you know a bunch of leader and then you'd have a, a three minute record buffer, and that was separated from the masters from the holy of holies, right. which it should have been. All the while, actually. Yeah. Well, and then well, we, we got smarter at Britannia because you could actually notch out a piece of the leader tape. And as it went through the gate, it would stop. We figured wow. that out. Oh, that is smart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much. That's, oh, my I mean, pleasure. That's, that's, Thanks for having me. You still all excited about a Harrison plug in there, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's only 20 bucks. It's a Harrison Dawn. Yes, I am excited about okay, it. Okay, well, we're back to reality. Look. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's you got to look back, you got to look forward, but it, it's all it's all related. It's all it's all relative. Tonight you know? it was more fun to look back. <laughs> it was definitely fun. 
you know. It's you know, you listen to some of this music and you forget that people created that, that people were recording and people were were mixing and that there was a moment in time where this guitar sound could have gone this way or could have gone that way, you know? And then and, and it's it's really amazing. I love being in the industry. I love meeting people who worked on this stuff. I just putting the human the faces on this, you know, eating Ken Scott and and all this. Oh, did just, King come down? Yeah, we yeah, had oh, fabulous. Yeah, he was times. here a couple times. Oh. Yeah, it's just you know, he's I, in Nashville now, right? He's how's yeah, he doing? He's, yeah. Is he doing okay? I guess. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing just to put a, a face to all these projects and stuff. So anyhow, well, hey, listen, um, really quick before we go, a couple things. Number one, um, I don't know if you guys remember. You may remember, but back in podcast number six, Morgan. Oh, yeah, I remember it clearly. <laughs> it was only eight years ago. No, Morgan Neville, who was a director, and I've mixed a couple of his documentaries. Yes, I do remember. Well, he was a guest. Well, you know, he won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. He and did? Yes. Yes. Well, I was never like, talk to us again. <laughs> 20 Feet from Stardom. It was, it was, and it's an awesome documentary. And I'm I actually, didn't realize he made that. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out to him and see if we can get him back on the, uh, on the podcast. Not a chance. But <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. No, I thought that was really cool. Anyway, well, hey, listen, if you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. That's audio at nowcastnetwork.com. We're running really super long. Guys, anybody have any projects that they want to uh, talk about? Um, I'll give a quick uh, shout out. Still making progress with the misses in Austin, great. the project I talked about last time. But the main thing I want to do, and it's going to seem a little less relevant when this finally posts, but I just wanted to give a shout out today to Stevie Wonder. It is his birthday. Right. Oh. Happy birthday. It's the big 6 4. Happy birthday. Now, is Crystal Sound there? That's gone, right? That's gone. <laughs> but Stevie is 64 today. And today also marks the 29th anniversary of me actually starting with him. Wow. Oh. Which just happened to be a coincidence that it was his birthday. It was also, and I started in Philadelphia, it also is 29 years since. They dropped the bomb on Move headquarters and burned down West Philadelphia. If you wow. check yeah. your history, you'll find it was the same day. So May 13th, 1985 was the day my life and a lot of other lives changed forever. Wow. But so happy birthday, Stevie. I don't blame him for the Move headquarters thing, but it's been, it's been a good 29 years. <laughs> it's been a good 29 years, and uh, I want to have 29 more. Wow. You, know, you realize that it was 20 years ago, 21 years ago that I started working the first show that I worked with Stevie was that Brunei trip. I do remember. Uh, Brunei's in the in can the you, uh, can you believe in that? the news again? I know. Can yeah, you remember right. twenty one years? No, because it seems like yesterday. I know that because my daughter is going to be twenty one this year, and I was on a Stevie Wonder gig that gig when she was born. So I was and like, Brunei, I did over five hundred <laughs> gigs with Stevie. Wow, that Brunei gig was absolutely by far hands down the craziest experience <laughs> I've ever had. With who was his mixer at Crystal? Was it Gary Elazabal? That's right. Who is yeah. my production partner? We've had a production company How's for 24 years together. He's doing, doing great. Wow. He's doing great. Well, hey, listen, I want to give really quick a shout out to um, our good buddy Bobby Osinski over here because Bobby has a podcast. And um, you're on show, what, number nine, right? Yeah, on show number nine is called uh, The Inner Circle, Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Um, someone who listens to this podcast actually, who is a podcast guru, came to me and said, you know, perhaps you should do your own. I said, I'm too busy. He said, look, I will help you do this. 
said, okay, if you do the production, I'm happy to do it. Those are the magic words, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's what's happened. So I've been interviewing. I, there's only one guest per podcast. We do it by Skype. I talk to people from all over the industry and all sorts of, they might be in social media, they might be in pro audio, they might be a player or whatever. It's different all the time. So it's kind of like your your blog, but podcast version of something. Exactly what it is, yeah. Because uh, I don't know if you guys read, and I recommend it if you read uh, Bobby's blogs, because they're really amazing. He talks about all kinds of cool stuff. And the main thing is you learn a lot of stuff. I mean, you, you cannot read his blog and not learn. So. Oh. Thank you kindly. I'm assuming you are the Iron Man of your podcast. You have not missed one. <laughs> so far, that's <laughs> true. Yes, I, I'm Excellent. the Rob Arbiter. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, anybody else help? I have a little thing that happened in the last couple of weeks. All right. Um, our first Star Wars app was released into the App Store. Star Wars Journeys the Phantom Menace. It instantly went to number one. Yes. It got editor's choice. Uh, and I got my first headlines in the New York Times, Variety, and Forbes all on the same day. So oh, it was wow. very wow. cool. That. That's pretty cool. That's that was, awesome. That was to, to see our stuff in the New York Times font was like a particularly <laughs> awesome thing for me. So Now I got to buy that. That was pretty cool. <laughs> That's great. And it's good to see Jeremy. Yeah, no, uh, I've got a super quick thing as well. Last time I was here, I sort of made a joke, like, I'm really excited I got a promotion. I can't talk about anything. Um, And I had a couple people make fun of me for that. But uh, the thing was, I actually got to work on uh, Divergent, which was a pretty large film that a lot of people saw. And it was really awesome because it was one of the first things that I could send my parents and anybody that was interested. And you could see my tiny little name at the very end of the list scroll by. That's what counts. That's what counts. That's what counts. (laughs) As long as they spill it right. (laughs) Yeah, so that was a lot of fun. Um, So if you happen to own Divergent on Blu-ray and are super bored one day. Wait, it's on Blu-ray already? I think it is. I don't know. It's been forever since it came out. I think I did see ads for it on Blu-ray. Or maybe it's coming out really soon, so I don't know. But if you're super bored one day, don't do that. Do anything else. But (laughs) it was fun. You know what? One other thing I have to point out. Sure. I'll keep it super quick. Is there's a lot of promotion right now for the new Godzilla movie. Yes. And the last Godzilla movie was one of the most, the trailers for that was one of the most pivotal times in my career. Right. For those who don't remember, I think we've talked about it in the past, but for that Godzilla, I was on that project for 13 weeks. There were three theatrical trailers and 75 separate TV campaigns for it because each city had its own separate campaigns. And it was the first time I got to hear my music played by a 100-piece symphony. Wow. It was a totally magical time, and it was 13, 13 months of incredibly solid work. But the idea, and that was Memorial Day 1998, I believe that that came out. Wow. And to think that now, here we are at Memorial Day... 2014, there's a new Godzilla. The one I worked on deserved to be forgotten and has been. I mean, it was a terrible movie. I actually went to see it twice in the theater to make sure I hadn't watched it wrong the first time. (laughs) I had worked on it for 13 months, and everybody was saying it was going to be the greatest movie ever made. And I saw it. I went to actually the premiere at Madison Square Garden, flew to New York for it, sat there and said, it must be the sound in here, because this really seems like a horrible movie. And I went the next day with my family in Philly to watch it, and it was just as bad. But... The idea, that's how you know you're getting old, when there's like a whole new generation of something you, all, you already worked on. I mean, Spider-Man for me was the same thing. That was a huge trailer for me when I did the original Spider-Man. Right. And now we're already so many Spider-Men past that, or Spider-Mans past that. And it's not a that It's good. a weird thing, but I had to just send a shout out. I hope this Godzilla is better, because I actually really like Godzilla in general. But it's sobering to me to see all this excitement, and the one I worked on is long forgotten. <laughs> hey, you know what? It looks good. Godzilla looks good. It looks really good. I can't wait to see it. The trailer's amazing. First one looked good, too, though. 
<laughs> Mike, you've been working on anything? Uh, I've been working on testing a lot of DAWs. How's <laughs> <laughs> that working out for you? <laughs> Uh, it's been working out okay, and actually, you know what? I'm at a point in my life right now where, gear-wise, I have no wants right now. Roger had a had a, had a club called Gear Sluts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And at one time, oh, I should come in on the mic, sorry. There you go. Uh, he, he, he was, uh, through um, Jeff Baxter, whose father was in CIA, uh, had asked Roger if he'd like to work on a project for the CIA at Langley. Uh Top secret, and Roger called me. He says, "Listen, so there'll be some guys coming to your house. Don't screw up." So these guys called me, and they show up in the you know in the truck, and they have the suits on. These video cameras, shooting them, shooting me, and just ask me all these questions like, you know, Roger was was Roger a good father? Was he a drunk? Was he this? Was he that? Did he blonde any uh, organizations or clubs that possibly could overthrow the American government? And I go, no. Hold on, there was one. And it was called Gear Sluts. And they got really interested in that. And I said, no, it's just a joke. I just want to scream with it. <laughs> and then I told Roger, but he was none too happy. <laughs> you know, none too happy. In fact, when Roger had a, a blog thing going on when it all first started, he had some thing where you could write in, like, ask Roger, like, my Roscoe. Well, there's a, there's like a Gear my, Sluts board. Like, my, like my, air, my air conditioning's not working. How can I fix it? <laughs> right. And I just took just the mick out of everything. I was constantly making fun of him. <laughs> and I would enter stuff like, you know, um, own a piece of history. Um, I'm selling like two inch by two inch sheets of Roger's linens, you know, for sale. <laughs> you know, build your own Roger Nichols altar, like, you know, old coasters, old napkins, <laughs> empty Snickers wrappers, fat burger wrappers <laughs> for sale. And he used to get so upset with me. I, we used to, he used to do these seminars like a guitar center, like, you know, like shilling some new gear. And it would be me and Tim Weston and Jerry Garza in the back, just kind of listening, kind of half bored. And there'd be a little Q and A afterwards. And I was always quick to raise my hand. And he would never call him. <laughs> I told, please, 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 Mr. Nichols, Mr. Nichols. He goes, okay, you in the back with the glasses. I said, do you validate for parking? <laughs> That's awesome. any, anything to rip him up? Anything to just you know? What else could I do? I didn't care. <laughs> You know, and, and, and everything he says, you know, I started using these speakers and I go, no, you didn't. You didn't use them in 75. It was the spring of 74, if I remember correctly. <laughs> around tea time, you know. <coughs> anything, to throw, anything to derail him, I could do. That's awesome. You know. Well, hey, listen, on that note, that's a great place for us to end. But uh, once again, if you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at audionowcastnetwork.com. That's audionowcastnetwork.com. Or you can uh, catch us on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash AudioNowCast. From myself and all the guys, thank you so much. Thank you, Russ, for coming by and giving us some great stories. And be sure to check out Bobby's podcast. And we'll catch you next time. See ya. Listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Westwave Audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and uses Aphex's 230 Master Channel Voice Processor. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.